This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Pull up a chair and order your favorite drink. Today we discuss what it means to practice architecture in the real world. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're talking about architecture in the real world. As in what it means to be an architect and practice architecture in the real world, not what you see on TV or in the movies. My job, at least for a large percentage of my time, is rather boring and tedious, despite however it's presented to you through social media. Most everyone I know, myself included, graduated from college thinking that we were going to be designing stuff, like that was our job. Yes, that's exactly the dream that you hoped was going to happen when you got out of school. All you do is design. All day long. All day. Well, my job requires certain personality skills in order to be successful, and even routine days can be stressful. Every day I run through about 20 deadlines, and to someone, their deadline is the most important one. And I get that, right? I mean, they're hiring us to perform a service. They don't care if other people are doing that. Yeah, exactly. You want what you want. It's my job you're working on, and I'm the most important person. So I get it. I'm acknowledging up front. That makes sense to me, and I get it. Long gone are the days when I came into the office and worked on one job. In my position now, I typically juggle about five or six different projects every single day, and I generally don't do much drafting anymore. Do you draft? No, I don't do any drafting anymore either. I hung up that a long time ago. I guess sometimes in... Dire emergencies when we're getting close to deadlines. <laughs> I'll revisit those, you know, those days of drafting and yeah. pro- doing production work, but I don't do that much anymore. I used to be an AutoCAD wizard, but we don't draft on AutoCAD anymore. Now we're Revit, and you know, I I took some classes. I thought for a while that I had like the entry level knowledge, but I'm such a dinosaur in terms of the fluid nature in which I can think and execute the software that I just get in the way. Quite honestly. Yeah. I can so, see that you get in the way. <laughs> thanks. I, I actually, I used to could use Revit quite a bit because when we first started using it, the office was smaller and I was still doing a lot of actual work. Now you don't do any now actual work. Now I don't do work. any actual work. Yeah. I don't do any actual production work. So if, when I have to jump back into it, it's pretty clunky for yeah. me. But you can do it. Yeah. To a certain extent. Yeah. You know, my biggest fear is when I'm peering over the shoulder of one of my coworkers and they're in Revit and they click something and a pop-up box will say something like disastrous. If you continue forward, you will be deleting this thing and they'll go click like, like they don't even read it. And I go, Oh my God, did you just like delete the whole file? And they're like, no, those things pop up like all, all the, time. the time. Yeah. Yeah. You just ignore them. Yes. I, I was like, oh. you know what you're doing? It's like they just deleted the dimension or some connection to another thing. I know. But as a dinosaur, yeah, I could see that scaring you. It's go, a giant comet coming from the outer space. In the AutoCAD days, I mean, we used to do the quick save. Did you ever know the quick save twice so that your backup file is the same as your current file? Yes. So I would quick save, quick save, like every 10 commands. Yeah. Right? It's for fear of losing Losing something, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't really draft like that so much anymore. Most of my time is spent using a calculator, writing documents, processing pay applications, and sending about a million emails every day that have three sentences in them and talking on the phone. Yeah. I don't talk on the phone that much. I try not to talk on the phone that much, actually, because I have a tendency to forget. I'm, yeah, but you have a beautiful speaking voice. But I'm getting to that. Yeah, whatever. I'm getting to that <laughs> point, though, where I can't remember stuff. 
And so oh. I want to do email so that I can go back and look at it later and say, this is the conversation that we had. Because if I was better, I would get off the phone and send a follow-up email and say, this is the stuff we just had a conversation about, right? Yeah. To document it. But Makes sense. I don't. And so, do you take notes when you talk on the phone? Sometimes though? I try, sometimes I don't, because the, I mean, wait, wait, sometimes you try and sometimes you don't try. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sometimes I get a phone call and it interrupts something else that I'm doing, and so I'm not really focusing on the phone, right? I'm still kind of tr- entrenched in whatever else I was doing, and I'm just kind right. of talking along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. We'll take care of it. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. you sure, I hear you, you want this on tape? No. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're. I'm okay. I'm. I'm better than. I was going to, I was trying to put a number to it. I don't have a number to it. I'm pretty good about following up with, see, I like talking to people on the phone, yeah. not because I like you talking, like talking to people. Well, I just period. No, that's that part of that's true. Mm-hmm. I like talking to interesting people, right? I, I like talking to people I want to talk to. Yeah. But like, there's a lot of contractors to work with that. I, I, I'm not particularly motivated to say, Hey, what'd you do this weekend? I mean, I'm not having those type of conversations, but I can tell more through talking to somebody than I can reading an email. And there is, like, we have a job going on down outside of Austin. The contractors, they send these emails, and every single one of them, like, really pisses me off. I go, hey, they don't need to take this tone. Like, this is aggressive. Why are they so aggressive? Then we go have a meeting, nicest people ever. Yeah. Like, really agreeable. And I go, you know what? I don't want to have these two-sentence conversations via email with you because I think you're a jerk. And then when I talk to you on the phone... You're not. But that's because you interpret it that way, though, right? No, you're no, no. you're no. putting the negativity on the email where it's just probably just stating facts, right? So It's very curt, right? And it's direct and to the point. Yeah. Well, I don't like meander through my when we're going to get the schedule. Yeah. You know, I'll ask them. I mean, I'm pretty polite. I'm a polite person, you know, when I write stuff. Sure. But the person that I'm working with in the office on the job, we both interpret it the same way. Yeah. We're like, did you get it that way? Like, did you, does that guy, I mean, that seems kind of like. Is he yelling at me? Like, what's what's his deal? Yeah. So I like talking to people. The other thing is, is and this happens in my office more than I would like, and maybe they're like you, they, they would rather have it written out so it's documented. I like calling people because I want an answer. Like, if I need an action made, I call you on the phone, I get an, I get an answer, I move on. It's, I'm done. If I send an email, well, you know, they get around to answering, you know, whenever I'm about to go to lunch and, oh, I forgot to answer it. So it's the next day. I don't like that. When I work, it is vector driven. I mean, it has force and direction. <laughs> I guess it's velocity. Velocity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I, and partly, though, you know, you said you have, you know, five or six projects that you're dealing with. And sometimes I have twice that many because yeah. I'm managing all the projects in the office. It's on some level. And so maybe that's the difference too. It's easier for me when I have fewer projects to kind of keep track of that stuff. But when I have a whole bunch and I'm overseeing 12 projects and I have to deal with all those things in one day, I can it see gets what, difficult to, yeah. to do that. So, And that makes me not mind sending an email and not getting an answer for a little while till it, tomorrow. Like because, a good thing. That's a good yeah. thing for you. Well, okay. So if we kind of circle back a little bit about the idea of when when – people like us, you, me, specifically, because we're here to validate that what we're about to say is true. I got out of school thinking, not that I'm the, the next, you know, fantastic designer. I felt pretty confident in my design skills. Still do, as a matter of fact. But the percentage of time I spend doing what I thought I would be doing as a practicing architect is wildly different. Yeah. The percentages are almost flipped, right? You would think that I was going to design 
80% of the time and 20% of the time I'd be doing something else. And it's almost the inverse, right? You design yeah. about 20% of the time. and Well, I've also found that it doesn't really change. I mean, it changes a little bit, but the design percentage, like when you first get out of school, you might be shocked to learn that you might do very little design, very little what I call white paper. Like we need a problem. There's no guidance at this point. There's just kind of, here's the problem. Go give me a solution. Yeah. I'm not talking about. Here's a blank sheet of paper. Get started. I'm not talking about we have a stair that's here and I need you to do the construction documents on the stair and there's design within how you assemble the details for that stair. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's a disconnect that I think that originates in the schools and I'll just speak about the school I went to, which I think is a great school. It's very highly regarded. I mean, if anybody listens to the show with regularity, they know I went to University of Texas down in Austin and it's widely considered as a pretty top shelf design school. And they, and these are my words, this isn't off of some paper I pulled out of, you know, the binder you get when you go to UT. But my impression from my time in school was it's so hard to get in. And their general opinion is you're smart enough to where we're going to focus on the things that you're not going to get exposed to, like color theory or form, shape, and mass. You know, the things that the profession is not going to take ownership of teaching you when you get out of school. Our degree by its design there's the educational component, and then there's the internship. My school, at the time I was in school, really said, hey, that internship that you will go through, that's where you'll learn the more practical aspects of what architects do as part of their job. And they focused, like, everything seemed like it was really design-oriented. So when I got out of school, I was a good critical thinker, but, hey, what's what, what do you mean? What's a vapor barrier? Yeah. You know, how, what do you mean? How big is a brick? What do you mean a two by four is not two inches by four inches? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so the expectation is you'll figure it out. You're smart enough. You won't make that mistake more than once. And the people that you work with when they hire you, that's that's on them to kind of fill in some of these gaps that your education, because the gaps we're filling, they will never talk about. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I have a differing opinion on that. I mean, I think we've talked about it before, but I think that the the magic sweet spot is somewhere in the middle between right overly practical and overly theoretical or design-based. Because I do agree that you need to learn the critical thinking skills and the design thinking skills. And those things are really important for you to grasp and create your foundation of while you're in college. But there is still some practicality, I think, that sometimes gets left out. And that depends. That varies from school to school. You know, some schools are very practice-oriented, and so they come out and they know how. Yeah, they hit the ground running. Yeah, yeah. Day one. they You want a wall section? I'm on it. They're there. Yeah, they can do those things. And so I just think it's a institution-by-institution thing, but also I think it's an overall academic thing where there's just a little bit of gap that needs to get bridged but doesn't always get bridged. Okay, well, let's point out to the people that are listening, you actually teach at college. I mean, you're a design professor at Texas A&M University. Yep. So do you... Because I don't know how this works. So fill me and fill in everybody. Do you pick your own topics? And do you, as part of your curriculum, think that it's there's some responsibility to teach these kids non-design issues? Like you said, hey, we're, we're solving this problem, but you need to consider that, hey, you can't have a 300-foot cantilever with a 10-inch beam on there because it's just, that's stupid. Yes, so is yeah. that part of is it part of the curriculum or do you personally just say that's I think I personally have a responsibility for this? I say I personally have a responsibility for it. They kind of have overarching curriculum ideas and concepts that are supposed to be taught like second year, third year, fourth year. 
And then there's some leeway in there for me to put my own personal emphasis on certain things. And so there is a construct, but me personally, now that I'm teaching, make an effort to try to at least interject some bit of reality into it. Get it on the radar screen. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, and I don't try to pound it into them, but just to make them realize there are constraints, right, at some point. And I think that's one of the things that academic world sometimes doesn't give you enough of is constraints. And then when you get out into the real world, man, there's tons of constraints, it's right? It's like nothing I mean, but constraints. Yeah, there's code, there's ADA, there's money, there's, you know, there's construction. Deadline. There's everything, There's right? time. Yeah. And so I think that that's where that imbalance comes in and that's where... I think for me, even when I got out and started practicing, that's where you get into that. This is not what I thought architecture was because I'm not designing all the time and I can do whatever I want. Well, I'd like to see schools teach more about how the mundane tasks influence how we design, which is really kind of just those things that you just listed, the, the constraints that we have to work within yes. as we practice. And I'd like to see firms encourage design within that mundane task, you know, like really kind of stress the fact that you may not think you're designing, but you are like when you do this detail, when you do this flashing, when you do this coping, this is design. It's not big picture design, but it's these little nuanced kind of solutions that take a good project and make it sublime. I mean, I think that's an easy way for, for me to look at it. And I also think that if those two things kind of come a little bit closer to the middle, that introduces a, t a level of understanding that would help combat the misconception of what these graduating architecture students are going to step into when they get their first job. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think it gets talked about all the time in the past couple of years. That there's this giant divide between academia and practice. And I hear it even more so now because I'm in, I've got a foot in both worlds now. And so I know that sure. in here that uh, it's, you know, there's such a huge gap between one and the other and nobody wants to bridge it. But I think that you're right, that if those things could be closer aligned, at least so that both give a little bit and come together to meet sure. this middle ground, that it would be beneficial, especially for the younger, the people just getting out of school, the early career folks, right? Because right, right. there's this issue of people leaving, or there was, leaving the profession because they get out and they get a job and they're like, this is not what we did in school. This is not what architecture is. This is not what I want to do. And Yeah, not only are they having to battle the I don't know how to do the things I'm being asked to do. There's the disappointment of, well, I don't want to do the things that I'm being asked to do. Yeah, this is not architecture. Yeah. I think, you know, designing those details, not viewing that as design, right? And just yeah. viewing it as pushing paper kind of work. They just get yeah. burnt. You know, the thing that really helped me cement the concept, at least in my mind, that like literally everything that I do contributes to the design of a project was when I was studying for the ARE. And when I first started, I was kind of like, oh. I don't want to learn how to do this or, you know, what the mix of the lime for this S type of mortar. But then all of a sudden I realized I went, well, this is actually what I do for a living. Like, so this is good that I know this. I mean, this is like a, an arrow in my quiver that will allow me to be a better designer if I understand when and how things work and how they contribute. The way that I designed shifted and it became more about how a thing is built became integral to the design of that thing as opposed to... We design what something looks like, and then we figure out how to build it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's important to know how something's going to get built. That's another one of those things I think you gain from experience, right? Going out to job sites and seeing how things get put together. And then that informs the way that you design things because you know this is how it's got to go, the order of construction and those kind of things, right? So you know how to make it work. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a good segue because what I want to talk about is the complete architect. I think to be a good architect, you have to be a lot more than a good designer. You have to be a good communicator. You have to be a good listener. And most importantly, possibly for me, you have to be good at making other people's problems your own and then solving them. Because in the end, that's why clients like working with you. Because if you care about them and take ownership of the problems, that's where the value comes in from their standpoint as the client, right? If I hire somebody and problems come up and man, my architect, he's on it. He takes care of that stuff. They're happy. Yes. Hopefully. they, They call you back. Yeah. Hopefully that's the case, right? Yeah. I think that it's becoming harder to a certain extent these days to be that complete architect because workflow is so siloed. And I don't know if this is how it is in your office. We try to not have it be this way in our office, but it seems that the industry is becoming specialized and we are losing the concept of the master architect. Everybody's becoming so specialized that they're not the jack of all trades. They're the master of one thing. One thing. Right. That's the goal. And this is particularly true in large firms. Oh, yeah. I definitely agree with that, that larger firms, it is completely that way. Well, to a certain extent, it makes good business sense for them. Yes. But, and I guess for some individuals, they could look at it and say, I'm the best healthcare workflow manager in the country. And that would certainly have a lot of value to it. Sure. For them as an individual or as a, even as a large firm, if you have that person in your firm. Yeah. But without, with, with being acutely aware that I'm, I'm trying to think how I could say this without being offensive. I don't necessarily think it makes that person a better architect. No, it makes them really good at that one thing. That's right. Yeah. Again, not to be offensive, but yeah. Yeah. And I think to me, the, the idea of the complete architect, right. Can be the one that can solve any problem. That's right. I mean, that's the, the idea that you're taking, right? Yeah. It's the idea that you learn how to think critically and just by taking the wealth of knowledge that you acquired, just by walking through your life every single day, you can logic your way through any problem. And that includes like how stuff gets built. Yes. That's a part of it. That's For a sure. big part of it. Yes. An you often know, missed part, actually. It's hard. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I look, I'm in a glass house here, literally throwing rocks. And I don't mean for it to come across that way because buildings are becoming so much more complicated and they're so much harder. I think that it's not through anyone's particular fault, but I think it's almost impossible to be that master architect now because you can't possibly be good enough at everything that we're supposed to be good at to be that old style master architect. Yeah, I would agree. There's no way, like you say, for that to even be possible. But I also think that there's no, or there's less interest in that now, even right as a, as a practitioner, nobody really wants to do that. It seems like everything is headed down that specialized path of, if you haven't done a hundred of these, then you can't do one. Well, the, the, the schools are really feeding into this because they're starting to come up with degrees that are specialized towards certain market sectors or certain types of roles within the industry. Yes. Which was not true as recently as 25 years ago. Yeah, or even 20 years ago, I think. Yeah, you just got a degree in architecture. You yeah. didn't get a degree in architecture with a specialization of healthcare or a specialization right. of sustainability or whatever it was, right? Yeah. Yeah, you just got a degree in architecture and you thought about all kinds of problems, not just every studio and everything I studied was healthcare. I have a lot of disparate thoughts on the subject because clearly there's benefit and value to having someone who is really, really good 
at what they do, despite the fact that it's siloed. It's the idea that, well, we need to make better. I mean, we're picking on healthcare a little bit and I don't mean to, it's just, it's an easy one because it's so specific and it's such a behemoth. And there's so many people that are getting absorbed into that market sector Mm -hmm. that it makes it easy to talk about. Yes. And the scale of those projects makes it hard for one person to have like this overarching knowledge of not just how they're designed and how they're programmed and how they're budgeted and how they're timelined and how they're designed and how they're built and how i mean yeah that takes a lot of people because each one needs to be very well knowledgeable about that one specific thing like the workflow like this is how an er works right and they've got to know all the ins and outs and the traffic flow and all that kind of stuff the people and the equipment and the dud and the and it takes an architectural village yes to to raise a hospital exactly (laughs) (laughs) an architectural village of specialists and if and if we were to on the other hand I don't know if we're we're picking on it, but like say residential, my firm, from a billing standpoint, we'll probably get, we get a lot more revenue from our commercial work than we currently get from our residential side. But I still kind of have it, you know, part of me goes, we're a res, we do a lot of residential work in our office, but we're not a residential firm, but it's far easier. You know, the last place where I worked, which I, I really enjoyed myself at that office. We basically only did residential work. work and it was a lot easier to be that jack of all master of none and to be good at it and to deliver a high quality product that was something that worked out really really well and it was not unreasonable for us to do so if you practice residential architecture i don't think that's an unreasonable thing to say i can do right i can be good at a whole lot of things and deliver an exceptional product and I am like that master architect, right? Because the bites are so much smaller. But do you think that's only in the relationship of residential architecture, right? Like you're the master of all or the jack of all trades in the field of residential work. That's right. And I, and I, and I don't think it's fair. I mean, I'm, I'm saying right now, it's not fair for, for me to present the, the idea that residential architects are, are more true to the spirit of what a master architect is than someone who works in healthcare. That's not what I'm saying. I'm acknowledging that the bite and scope of work and the responsibility and what you need to know is so much less in residential that it's not as hard to accomplish. Like it's something that, that ideal that I know what I'm doing and every step along the way in the delivery of this product, when in my mind, that seems impossible for these healthcare projects. Yeah, it's a smaller, not smaller, it, maybe it's a less complicated silo that you're in, right? As, that's right. As a resident. And not that that's a bad thing, but it's just that's it versus the nature of if you're in that health cash silo, man, it is all kinds of stuff going on that seems almost impossible for one person to be able to master all of those things. Yeah. And for me, and I think this is for students that are coming out, this is the thing that I find real interesting. So we have a, we have a gentleman in our office, Nick, shout out to Nick, who graduated from Texas A&M. And he's got a specialization in healthcare. Yes. And when he graduated, he went work someplace for a while. He I don't, he might not appreciate me telling tales out of on his behalf out of school, but he went work someplace for a while, and they did healthcare work. And from what I understand, he was pretty good at it. But he felt disconnected in his with his one little piece of the pie, and you know the idea that you're going to get really good at this chunk, yes. right? As you're evolving, that he felt like a disconnect from the end user, and that's kind of the idea. And I'm putting words in his mouth now, you know, that's what made him not want to work in the healthcare sector anymore is because he felt I'm one pin along the journey of 500 pins. And I don't really 
get a piece in the beginning. I don't get a piece at the end. I don't see how the end user engages with this. I don't, that reward of being a part of a solution was empty for him. Yeah. For him. He wasn't getting the piece that he wanted. That's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe it would be easy for me speaking on his behalf if he was closer to the end and had more engagement with the people that used it and went, oh, I love, I love this. This is like, I felt like I'm, I'm recuperating better in this environment than if I were in a, in a lesser quality environment. You know, maybe that would enrich him some way, but that speaks a little bit to, to the students who are in school now having to force them to have an understanding of a little bit more about who they are and what they want to get out of their education and what type of architecture do they actually want to practice? Because Nick went through the whole process, you know, and he got the certification in healthcare and went practice for a couple of years and said, I'm unfulfilled. And I didn't have that specialization. So I didn't have the expectation that went along with the specialization, like what I was going to get. It was a little bit easier for me to carve out my path. I've had a lot of jobs. I've covered a lot of work in a lot of different silos. And it took me till my mid thirties before I said, this is it. I think having taught students that it's difficult for them to even comprehend the type of architecture that they want to do. Absolutely. While they're in school, because they just don't have a clue. Unless they're parent were an architect of some sort or were in the industry, they're coming in blank. They like architecture because they want to do buildings and like to design stuff, but they have no clue about all the different types and all the ranges of things that can be done within the profession. Yeah. And the different types of jobs within the field of architecture that you can practice. Exactly. Like they're not all designers as we're talking about today, but I think trying to get them to decide is just impossible. So it's more about giving them some realistic expectations so that then when they come out into the real world, it's still going to take them till their mid thirties to figure out what that path is. Right. Okay. So here's, what's interesting. So I'm glad you kind of brought that up because one of the things I've written down here, and this is kind of a positive spin on what could be perceived as somewhat a negative conversation so far, which I don't intend it to be negative, that there's a role for everyone. So one of the good things about having a site like mine, like life of an architect is I get emails from all ages, all demographics from all over the planet. And they tell me what they like, what they don't like, what their fears are. Is it too late for this? Or can I change this? Or is it, should I quit? Should I, you know, what, what should I do? And I'm not really in a position because quite honestly, you can't email me enough information for me to be in the proper position to guide your future. Yes. Right? Nor would I really want to probably. Yeah. yeah. But the people doesn't stop them from emailing me. Right. They just want some advice. They just want some advice. An opinion. So one of the things that one of the types of emails that I get a lot is I'm not very good at drawing. Can I still be an architect? Or I don't like math. Can I still be an architect? And my responses are always really positive. I'm like, Absolutely. Of course you can. There are so many jobs. There are so many tasks and roles that a person can play within the process of delivery of an architectural building or just of a building that if you don't like to draw or if you're an introvert, if you're an extra, there's a place for you. Yes. If you like architecture and you have a passion for the process or just the built environment, definitely. I think so. You know, cause it's funny when I was in grad school, I went straight from undergrad to grad school. And then there was other people that had worked for a while and came back and they were older and I'd get into conversations with them and they would say things about other students like, well, he's not going to be a great designer, but that person's going to be an awesome project manager or that person's going to be an awesome, you know, something. And I was like, man, that seems like an insult. But in reality, it wasn't, right? It's just right. they'd worked and they know they can tell that this person's skill set, while may not be a designer, but they're going to be awesome 
as an architect doing this part of the process. Yeah, it's it's like you can start to see how people's brains process and internalize and regurgitate information differently. You know, I've talked about it before. There's like linear thinkers and there's radial thinkers. You know, my wife, the mathematician, she's a linear thinker. Me, I, I like to think that I fall more to the design end of things. And I am a radial thinker. I don't know. Your vector, your vector <laughs> approach to things seems I mean, pretty linear. I can't be I can't be married to a woman for as long as I have who's a mathematician and not pick up some analogies to the math world. So, but there's this this idea that the phrase we used to hear, if you're in school and you got A's in design, you're, you were a professor. If you got B's, you know, you were a project architect. If you were a C, you're a star designer, like in the real world, <laughs> yeah, in the real world. I got you. Yeah. And, you know, and the premise is that the people that were A's, they're so far out there that none of the stuff they do will ever get built. Like they're, they're just so like, this isn't, it only is good because there's no restrictions on it. There's not all. even gravity. Yeah, that's right. Gravity doesn't exist. And this, that's what makes it amazing. Yeah. The B people, they're like one foot over here and one foot over there, which kind of makes you go, all right, they understand the process, but they also have this under tendency, which allows them to coordinate and move projects along in a, in a path that makes sense as a deliverable. Yes. And it's the C people, the ones that were like, well, that's not, that's an uninspired design. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like it's okay. It's not great. You didn't really push any boundaries because that's the stuff that gets built. <laughs> right. You're like, Oh my God, that guy's a future roll it out. Jack in the box designer. Right? Oh, yeah. You know, it might be really well done. And I go, you know what? That's brutal. That's brutal. And I have to say at 50 years old and 25 years out of school, it's not that far from being wrong. I was going to say, I think actually that <laughs> sounds pretty, pretty right. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But I mean, I would assume you got A's in design. I got A's in design. Yeah. But I mean, I don't consider myself that strong of a designer, actually. I mean, I'm good at putting stuff together, but I kind of keep within certain boundaries. Yeah. I th I think I'm, I'm um, if we're using the A's or professors and B's or project managers and C's or star designers, by that comparison, I, sh I was like a, I made C's and B's. But reality, I, I, I did pretty well in school in yeah. design. I got, I got A's towards the end. I got A's all the time. I should be teaching, man. Maybe. <laughs> maybe maybe that's why I teach some now, but it's not reflected in my portfolio of work. So, Well, yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, we all go down certain paths in it. And that's something that's a different conversation for, for a different day, but it's the premise that you as a college student can't possibly know yourself well enough to know what you like and what you're good at. There's this disconnect between the things that, you want to be good at like designers. Yes. I know a lot of people that they really want to be great designers, but the reality is they're just, they're, they're not. just not, they're yeah. just not. And Nor will they ever be. No, but they don't give up on that. And they, and they might say, I, I want to be designer. And they fight it and they fight it and they get a job and they don't get design responsibilities. So they leave and they're disgruntled and, and it, it takes a while for them to go, yeah, you know what? But I'm a kick ass project manager. Like I can do, I have a skill set. That lends itself. And the truth is, is most people eventually when they figure that out, actually find some peace in it because it's way better to be good at the thing that you enjoy. And by in the exact opposite, the things that you enjoy, you're probably good at. Yeah. And it takes a while for you to kind of get that maturity to go beyond the. To what, embrace it. Yeah. To embrace the fact that, that what you thought you wanted to do may not be what you're good at. Yeah. Right. I'm not Rinso Piano, but you know what? I could get one of his projects done, right? Like 
Sure. I could be the person in his office that makes it happen. Shout out to Renzo. Yeah, I know. He's a good buddy of mine. (laughs) So it's time to humanize us as regular people, which we have attempted to do in each episode by addressing either random hypothetical questions or by talking about the things we do in our spare time. And Andrew and I were talking about this just last night, and we decided that when we do hypotheticals, which is not today, that they're not going to be architecture related. Because that doesn't humanize us. We need to talk about the things that we don't do when we're, we've got our architect hat on. So today, we're going to talk about our spare time. Because we just got through the holidays. I know you took some time off. Oh, yeah. I took some time off. That's what the holidays are for. That's what they're for. So, Andrew, let's start with you. What have you been doing in your spare time? In my spare time. In my spare time. In my spare time. Yeah, we need to figure out, like, is it a, is it a beautiful... Or is it like hardcore? I think. Well, I think one should be one and one should be the other, right? Like, <sighs> spare time should be so lofty and whatever. I'm sorry, but uh, yeah, hypothetical but, should be like, heard about the hypothetical. Well, I know. According to our hype, the way we just sang the spare time, I'm beautiful and you're hardcore. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh so it should be one of each. Mine was each melodic ah. and yours was gravelly. 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 <laughs> okay. So what have you been doing? Well, the holidays have been interesting. I've done a little... Fighting with Mother Nature, and then a little re... <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what that means. So, I guess it was Christmas Eve, or maybe the day before Christmas. I'm sitting there in my living room with my kids, and we're watching Christmas movies or something. And I hear this really loud clank noise, and some other scrunching around up above my fireplace. No, that in can't the be good. Room. That yeah, can't be good. It was not good. And so, I'm like, all right, maybe that was just something, and then no... It, I look, it, I I'm, it again. I'm here to tell you, everybody, if you ever hear like a clanking sound and then like a, a scrabbling, it's going to be bad. Yeah. Well, and it was. <laughs> and I hear it again and I'm like, okay, this is it. Then I hear some pitter patter on the roof. Oh, I'm like, Lord. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. So it's, you know, it's dark outside. I get my flashlight. I go outside on my, on my deck and look back up at the fireplace or at the chimney. And my house is all redwood siding, vertical six inch siding. And the chimney is also... And so I have some little nature creatures that have, they've taken off one of the pieces of siding and they've crawled into my chimney. They didn't. Yeah. Raccoons. Of course. Raccoons. They're the worst. Yeah. Oh, no, it gets better. And so I start screaming. Because they they know what they're doing. Yeah. This is just hateful behavior. (laughs) It is. They're just mean. (laughs) So I get the flashlight and I see, and there's one outside on the roof, outside the chimney. And giving I, you the finger. Yeah. And then I've, <laughs> I've put the flashlight in this crack. You know, it's about a six, eight inch crack that they've gotten into. They've torn like the tar paper off. Right. Mm, mm. And they're in there. Mm-mm. Well, I look in there and I see four more eyes. <laughs> and I'm like four more sets or just, no, just four, four more? more eyes. So only three babies. No, babies? no, they're full grown. Okay. These are big whopping, probably 20 pound raccoons. They're there to party. Yeah, they are. <laughs> well, it was, it was when it was cold. I guess they were trying to find some place to be warm or whatever. So I yell at them for a bit. And the one. Like what? <laughs> what do you yell at them? I'm just yelling. Ah! You'll never amount to much. No, yeah, no. <laughs> so then I go back in the house. I'm like, all right, I'm going to show them. I turn my fireplace on because I've just got a gas fireplace. I turn it on full blast. I'm like, I'm going to burn them out. They're like, oh, this is. They probably are. But marshmallows up there. Uh, and then I go and get one of my daughter's volleyballs. And I just start throwing it at the part of the chimney that's still intact. Just trying to scare him out. Finally, I give up. I don't ever see him come out. I'm going to give up. And so the next day, when it's daylight, I go to the store and I buy some 
Tribeca and I go up on the roof and I take off. I go up on the roof with a bat <laughs> just in case. Um, a baseball bat. Yes. <laughs> yes, a baseball bat. Not like a fruit bat. Not a fruit bat. Yeah, yeah. And I go up there and kind of bang around a little bit. Nothing comes out. But then I, there's on the backside, the upside, because my roof slopes and they didn't make a very good cricket. There is 800 pounds of raccoon poop behind my <laughs> chimney. So I sweep all that off. Look in there. They're not in there. Pull all the siding off of that one side. Put the tie back, the building wrap back up. And put the siding back on. And put fill in the one that they had taken off. It's very crafty. You're very crafty. I just had to get it done. I thought, man, all right, I got it. Solved it. Sitting there that night. And I hear some banging around of feet on the no, whatever. They didn't. No, and I they go didn't. back up there and I don't see any of them. I don't see anything. And then I see there's like the side of the the other, like the perpendicular side. There's something kind of hanging off. I'm like, what is going on? It's like, but I don't hear them anymore. I'll look at it tomorrow. I go out there and the next day, the other side, the perpendicular side has got just a vent, right? Like a vent grill. And those little rascals had pulled a corner of that metal vent grill up <laughs> and tried to get in. I don't think that they got in because the hole wasn't big enough, but there was, they were monstrously large. Yeah. And there was a loose enough, I guess, nail or something on that corner, but they had bent that thing all the hell and everything. And so I climbed up there again, got that thing all secure. And now I've won. I haven't heard him back up there since stupid raccoons. That's terrible. But that was my, you know, enjoyment for that. That was not a great. <laughs> <laughs> that was my spare time. That was not great. That, and then I've been painting my bedroom, which is a chore in of itself. It's taken me much longer than possible. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. We have critter issues around my house. We have opossums, mm. which are filthy, disgusting. Yeah, They're I don't the, like possums. Oh, the worst. Well, I came driving down the alley one night, and right before I turned into my driveway, I see one of them like running, running down my driveway, like, like he was at my garage door and like I pulled in and he's like, Oh, I got to get out of here. But of course the way they run, it's like, it's like they're wounded. It's like, they're trying to make you feel sorry for them. You know, like, like, Oh, it's so cold and it's wet. I can barely move. I hate possums. I just want to go somewhere else. Just don't go here. Yeah. They're just like a giant rat. They're disgusting. I don't mind raccoons. The funny thing about that story is the week prior, me and my daughters had come home and there's a raccoon in the front yard. Hanging out in my front yard and he'd run back. Smoking into, a pipe. Yeah, run back into the bushes. <laughs> you know, And I was like, oh, he's just trying to find a way to get into my house. So. He was he was the he was doing recon. I know he was. He was <laughs> yeah, he was the first patrol. What about you in your spare time? Yeah, mine was way better. So I went skiing for the first time over the holiday break. Was it the first time ever? Well, technically no. The first time I ever went skiing was I was seventeen years old. I was a senior in high school. It was me and Two of the most fabulous girls from my high school. Spring break. To this day, I don't know why they asked me to go. <laughs> I kept waiting for them to, to cancel on me. Like, we kept getting closer and closer. And I kept thinking, any day now, they're going to say, we don't know what we were thinking. You're not coming. <laughs> were, were you <laughs> driving? Did you, did no, you pay flew. for stuff? What, yeah, what? yeah, we flew. It was me and one of the girls was the head cheerleader. And the other one was the head of the drill team. What a braggart. And, and me. I know, of course, I'm going to brag about that. But to this day, I'm like, yeah, I don't know why that happened. So, so I went, and they knew how to ski, and I didn't. My memories, there might be some hyperbole involved, so I'm not going to recount any of my skiing tales. But it was only for a couple of days, and it was actually in Utah. Well, that was 33 years ago. So this is the first time in 33 years that I went skiing. 
So you're starting over no matter what. No matter what. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm bigger and I'm taller and I weigh more and I'm my center of gravity is different. And, and I'm less flexible. I'm not as flexible and yeah. stuff is not as bendy as it used to be. So my sister has a place. She she built a place up in Deer Valley. And which turns out it's a really good place to go if you're a brand new skiing. Like they have a lot of like kind of green runs and stuff that for beginners. Right? Yes. So me and my wife and my daughter, we go up there and we get there on a Thursday, Thursday afternoon, we're on the slopes, no lessons, nothing, just get out there. But they're on like bunny slopes. So they have these things called magic carpets where it's like basically a conveyor belt that's in the snow and you step on it and it drags you up the hill. Up the tiny hill. Yeah. It was, huge. it was like the devil's throat is what I called it. It was so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> the green. The gr- Yeah, the green. Yeah, I know. And everybody who skis thinks that's hilarious. But you know what? If you if if you're fifty and you never skied before, it's a little like you're like, if I fall, a bunch of stuff is gonna go shooting off and it's not just gonna be equipment. Yeah. It's not gonna be like I'm gonna lose an arm. Yeah, in the yard sale of equipment, there's gonna be like a leg. Like <laughs> you know, it's still attached to that ski. So the second day we went, Kate took an all day lesson. My wife and I we took like a half day lesson. As it turns out, it came back to me pretty quick from 33 years ago. So I had, up to a certain point, didn't have much problems. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't have problems going down. I had problems stopping. I had problems turning right. Turning left was a little bit harder, but really not that big a deal. And so the instructor ignored me and he focused on the two other people that were in our class, one of which was my wife. So at the end of that day, I go with my sister, her boyfriend. We go up, ride a big lift, go up to the top of the mountain, 9,400 feet. Mm -hmm. And there's a green run. It's also, I'm going to admit it because it's embarrassing, but it's also where skis, it's a ski school run. So it's designed for people that are new at skiing. Sure. So it shouldn't be the worst. And it was the end of the day. I was getting tired. And I'm telling you, there were a couple of moments when I went, this is how it ends for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was convinced I was going like a thousand miles an hour, despite the fact that I had about 120 degree snowplow action going. With my skis. Yeah. And then, of course, I'd cross the tips. I'm heading towards a tree or something, and I can't pick up my skis and move them because I'm stepping on them <laughs> with the tips and skis. <laughs> and I went, this is it. This is, uh, this is how I die. Someone's going to have to somebody tell my story. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. And, and so the next day, we all went down the same kind of green run. Turns out my daughter loves it. The first two days, we kind of did it, kind of the afternoon and the next day when she took her lessons. I said, so how do you like it? You loving this? You loving it? Because I really want her to enjoy it. My sister's got a beautiful place up in Deer Valley. Yeah. And it's some of the best skiing, you know, beautiful snow, amazing landscape. You want to find a way to take advantage of that, right? Sure. And my sister's very generous. There's no doubt in my mind, anytime she was there, if we wanted to come, she's like, yeah, come on. We'd love to have you. And so I really wanted it to work out. I wanted everyone to love it. My daughter's like, man, it's not that great. And I was like, oh my God, you you know, you got to love it. I need you to love it. (laughs) Well, when we finally did like proper green runs and we rode up to the top of the mountain, that she loved. Turns out, didn't love the bunny runs. Kind of boring. Yeah. Right? Didn't love that. She did wipe out once in the most spectacular, cool way ever. And I was going up, I was skiing faster than she was. And so we were not like hanging out with each other. And I'm going up. We're on the highest magic carpet at this point, the highest bunny run, which you can translate to the highest degree of difficulty. For a bunny run. Maybe not, but <laughs> for, okay. For a bunny run. Okay. It yeah. wasn't, you know, it wasn't a blue or double double black or whatever. So I'm going up this conveyor belt and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I hear like this shushing kind of sound. 
And I look to my left to see my daughter basically flat on her back, laying on the back half of her skis. Like her skis are perfectly parallel. And she's like down. Her feet are still in the boots. She's reclined back, laying on her back skis, flying underneath the rope. And she crosses my skis and comes to a complete stop as we're on the conveyor belt. And I look down, I'm like, hey, Kate. And she looks up and she goes, hey, daddy. <laughs> like, like it was perfectly normal. She could have done that to a hundred different people, but it was me. I mean, like the odds of her doing this to her father are rather spectacular, pretty, yeah. pretty spectacular. And if it had been a half second later, she would have knocked you she out. She would have destroyed my legs. I'm, both, I'm sure both my kneecaps would still be on the mountain somewhere. <laughs> but it wasn't. Everything about it would just worked out perfect. Well, and I was like, that's the coolest kind of crash I've ever seen in my life. Except for the fact that the way you described it, I think my knees would have been broken. But she didn't hit me. No, but the position that she was in. Oh, yeah, there's no way. I would have broken my knees. <laughs> like my, my legs would have fallen off before that. Yeah, for sure. I couldn't do that. Yeah. And the truth is, when I, did, I fell twice. Out of the whole time I went skiing. So I'm like feeling pretty good about myself. Only skied twice. Sure. One of the times I fell is because one of the ski instructors was skiing backwards and skied into me and knocked me over. So I go, that's not my fault, right? That shouldn't count. No, that doesn't count. And the guy was like, really? I'm so sorry. I shouldn't. That's really crazy. And the thing is, is when he knocked me down, I was like 10 feet from the netting at the bottom. And so I fell and went right into the netting. (laughs) Like I just got up. I mean, it was like the worst possible. But I learned... Uh, either I'm so fat or uh, I don't know what it is. I couldn't get up. I had to take my skis off in order to get up. Yeah. You know, I go either I'm a, I'm weak. I don't have tremendous upper body strength or something, but I couldn't make it happen. I think that's just being old. I don't like this idea that I'm old, though. Well, I don't mean being old, like, and I'm not calling you old any older than me. <laughs> I, am, I am old. I'm just meaning like <laughs> I found that as I've because I skied quite often. I haven't skied in a few years, but. The older I got and in my later 30s, A, I couldn't ski as long. Like, you know how you're talking about the end of the day, you think you're going to die? At the end of the day, I'm like, I'm out of juice. Yeah. I I, got to stop early because I can't, I'll I'll just fall over, right? My legs aren't going to hold me up anymore. And B, that when you fall down, it's much harder to get back up and get everything put back together. Yeah. The vote for the Borson family after our ski vacation of 2018 was thumbs up. That's good. So I imagine that. There'll be some additional skiing in our future. In your future spare time. Yeah, in my future spare time. That's nice. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with Andrew and me for episode 16, Architecture in the Real World. If you liked today's episode and can find it in your heart, please take the next 30 seconds and head on over to iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast so you can get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded. And while you're there... Please go ahead and leave us a five-star Borg Warner Cup rating if you haven't already. It really does make a difference and allows us to keep this podcast show on the tracks. If iTunes isn't your player choice, we're also available on Google Play, TunedIn, Android, and a bunch of other platforms. It's all free, and all you have to do is hit the subscribe button on your podcast listening app of choice. Please be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Also, be sure to stick around until the very end, and we'll try to reward you with some stupid outro tape. Thanks so much for tuning in. Cheers. See you on the flip side. I can hear the phlegm. That was a good sound. Nice. I can do fart sounds.
<laughs> Wait, quiet. Okay, let's get to work. <laughs> That's all on the show notes. Such talent. Yes. Hand farts yes. with Bob Borson. Yes. <laughs> Repeat performance. Like, you know, like it was so popular the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I've been brought back. Today. For a second. For sold out showing. Encore performance of <laughs> hand farts. Yeah. With Bob Borson. Do you know, I worked with a guy who was like exceptionally gifted at this. <laughs> I don't even know if I can do it. I used to could. Used, but, you know, used to could. That's I, a Texan word for you. Used to could, but you know, you're all air. I know. Used to hold margarine. <laughs> used to hold margarine. <laughs> okay, here we go. Ready? <laughs> 